I love how food connects people. You know, it's such a catalyst for great conversation. It's such a catalyst for change. And I really do think that native food, First Nations food, can be part of reconciliation. You know, my, my hope is that we can all join together as one nation and walk forward together. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Although native ingredients and their use in contemporary cooking is more common, we still have a long way to go to understand their uses and the cookery of our First Nations people too. Using native ingredients is one thing, but telling the stories of the past on the plate for those with an Indigenous ancestry is far more revealing of Australia's longer history with food. Mindy Woods is the owner and chef of Kakala in Byron Bay. Mindy, how are you? I'm good, Jinkiwala. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show. You've been doing all sorts of things in the food world over the last decade, but something really quite exciting and close to your heart in Byron. Um, tell us a bit about it. Yeah, I um, I feel like I've finally kind of connected my my purpose with my passion, which is, I think, one of those things that we all strive to do. But I opened Kakala um, about two years ago now, not quite two years ago, mad enough to open a restaurant in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> but it has, it has proved its worth, um, you know, a big part of opening Kakala and was my return to country. You know, I got a, a, a call to country a couple of years ago where I knew that I needed to be home and return to ancestral land be closer to my family and of course being in, involved in food I mean the the next best thing for me was to open a restaurant on ancestral lands and do my part to try and connect indigenous and non-indigenous people with um, with our culture through food tell us a bit about how it all started and the idea for the restaurant came about yeah, I guess um, when I knew that I was going back home, I, I'd always had this kind of aspiration to, you know, open my own restaurant, but learning, you know, over the last 10 years, learning from a lot of mistakes and, you know, from from other people and having that opportunity to kind of get my, you know, ingrained within the industry, whether it was back of house or front of house, I kind of had this sense of, um, you know, a, a venue, a restaurant really can have a greater purpose and it's so much more than the food, you know, creating experiences for people and connecting them, you know, through to culture through food, I think is something that as Aussies, we don't often think we've got the ability to do. You know, we are, we are a nation of travellers and food lovers and we love going overseas to experience, you know, a culture through food. You know, you think of like the pizza and pasta of Italy and the street food of Thailand. We don't often attach ourselves to having our own individual unique food culture. And I, I really believe that we do. In fact, it's a 60,000 year old history, you know, attached to that food culture. And it's one of those things that we're probably only just starting to have a listening and awareness for. Well, the last two years have been challenging um, for everyone on the planet, but certainly the hospitality sector and um, to open a restaurant during that time has its challenges. But what's it also been like sort of uh, delving into the past and looking at these ingredients and exploring things on the plate for you? Yeah, it's been incredibly exciting. I um I mean it gets me out of bed every single morning despite the challenges we've faced and you know I know there's been a lot of hardship that have come out of COVID there's been terrible you know losses of business losses of lives I mean it doesn't really get much worse but there's also been some silver lining in that cloud and I think what it's given Australians is that 
ability and that opportunity to look introspectively. You know, we're looking in, we're starting to look at our own surroundings, our own country and actually appreciate what Australia has to offer. And a big part of that is actually acknowledging Indigenous culture and our history, you know, with Indigenous First Nations Australians as well. And I think that's kind of my driving force at the moment, that that ability to connect people with an ancient, rich culture and the world's oldest ingredients, you know, and, and interpret them in a modern way and really connects people to something that we all absolutely, you know, love and appreciate, which is food. So, and it's, and I see the, um, I see the surprise and I see the wow factor and I see that connectedness that people get when they eat our food and the stories that we share behind it. Because for us as First Nations people, you know, our food is so much more than an ingredient. It's something that's connected with our history, our culture, our country. You know, it, it forms part of our, our art and our song lines. So there is so much more to these ingredients than them simply being about food. Tell us a little bit about your family's uh, history and the ancestry there and, and where you're from. Yeah, I'm a proud Widjibal Wyabal woman from the Bundjalung Nation and we've I'm so lucky, you know, as a foodie to come from a region that is well, is and was a, a food bowl f- for First Nations people so we cover everywhere down from kind of the Clarence River down near um, Yamba all the way up through the Gold Coast um, and we've got, you know, about 13 clans within that, you know, within that nation so I'm part of the Widjibal Wyabal clan, um, proud Widjibal Wyabal woman and you know, like many of the First Nations communities, the the women were in charge of, of the food. You know, we were the matriarchs, we were in charge of taking care of country and gathering up to 80% of the food for mob. And I still feel like that carries on today. You know, that's incredible, isn't it, when you think about <laughs> it? God knows what the men were doing all the time, but the women were in charge of looking after the kids and gathering up to 80% of the food, you know, for the community at any one time. And my nan did that. You know, I was really lucky to spend time with my nan, Margaret Felton. She was a, a beautiful woman that, you know, was born um, up, you know, in Lismore. And she was... She was given permission to come off the mission because um, she married a a local white fella, my grandfather, Oswald Felton. But, you know, she had 11, well, she actually had 12 children, you know, my mum being one of them. And she also raised some of her nieces and nephews. So in a tiny little three-bedder home in Lismore, she raised over 12 children at any one time. And when times were tough, you know, she, she leaned back on her traditional ways of, hunting and gathering, you know, going out mud crabbing and fishing and pippying and, you know, collecting river mussels to feed her kids. And I was really lucky to experience that as a child where she would take us as a big mob down to the beach of South Ballina and all those gorgeous beaches in the Northern Rivers. And we would go pipping together, we'd be crock- cracking off, you know, oysters from, from the rocks for Nan and filling them up into glass jars. She would tell us that they were no good and I'm sure it was just so she could eat the lot herself. But uh, <laughs> but we would be sitting there around a campfire cooking pippies and making pippy curry. And, you know, I didn't realise it at that time, but she was connecting us to our culture, you know, in those moments and we would be picking off the beach succulents like Kakala or we call it in lingo Yuli which is that beautiful beach succulent pig face that we all see and we all recognize we just don't realize that it's bush food and it's bush medicine and it's connected to those place places you know and for me to experience a culture you must experience its food and um, and I feel really proud that I'm able to do that in a, in a modern way and take these ancient ingredients and those stories and now show showcase it at, at Kakala. 
It's an, uh, an amazingly large food bowl uh, that you speak of. Are there, are there some ingredients that really stand out for you from that food bowl that, that you're using now that have such a long history? Oh, my God, so many of them. You know, Australia has over 6,500 unique ingredients. And I'm very lucky because we do, do come from that food ball. But what a lot of people don't realise in Australia is that within Australia itself, we have over 250 Indigenous nations. That's just within mainland Australia. And within that mainland Australia, there's over 500 languages and dialects. And then you delve into it a little bit deeper and you look at those those food-specific regions because each of those nations has food that is completely unique to them and food that is completely unique to that culture, just as language would be. And you think of the comparison with Eastern Europe, it's very much the same. You can cross a border, go from Italy into France, and suddenly you've got a unique language group, you've got a unique food offering, and Indigenous cultures are just as unique particularly when it comes to their language and their food. So that's something that I really like to tap into. And I'm so lucky because I feel like Bundjalung country is one of the richest in terms of its food sources. You think of finger limes, we call them gulalung in lingo. And I really am so passionate about connecting Indigenous ingredients with our languages as well. You know, I find it really funny sometimes when we think of bush apples or bush grapes or bush peach, these actually have a name that is unique to that nation. And they're the things that we should recognise it by. So we also have um, we have macadamia nuts. People don't realise that is our own native nut and it does come from the Northern Rivers region right up into southeast Queensland. Um, lemon myrtle, you know, a pig face, you know, succulents. There's, there's, there's sea blight. There, there is so many ingredients that are unique to each of these kind of countries and nations and it is such an honour to be able to celebrate them. You, uh, your career in food started um, later. You, you had a career before that um, as a physiotherapist. Tell, tell us a bit about that period of time. I, I loved being a physio. You know, for me, it's it's always been about connecting with people. I'm a huge people person. I love connecting with them. I love hearing their stories and sharing stories. And physio actually gave me that ability to do that as well. And I worked in private practice for a little while and then I found my way into um, working for defence and I was a rehab physio for defence and at the time you know we were bringing back soldiers from places like Afghanistan the Middle East and I had the absolute privilege of running the rehab section for the Australian Defence Force at Inogra Army Barracks and I was you know being able to help you know be part of the rehabilitation of some of our incredible soldiers that were in the you know early 20s up to the you know late 40s and 50s where these men had hugely traumatic injuries um, coming back from the war zone and um, you know I guess within spending that amount of time with those people I just felt so privileged I just didn't think my my career in, in physiotherapy could get any better than those experiences and i thought it was time for me to kind of go in a different direction. Well, you went in a very different direction. Tell us about that move into food. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's one of those stories where some people kind of roll their eyes about or some people think, oh my God, that's absolutely incredible. But I... Um, at that time, I was a huge food lover, always cooking for families, friends, taking food into work. And I 
kind of, you know, decided that I needed a bit of, bit of a change. And my friend at that time had actually applied for me to go on to MasterChef Australia. And I had no, no idea about it. I certainly wouldn't have agreed to do it if I had any idea <laughs> what they were up to. But they put in an application for me. And the next thing you know, I'm getting a phone call and a couple of emails at work saying, we'd love you to come in for an audition. And I really hadn't prepared myself. I had no idea what I was into or in for, but decided to go along to the audition. And before I knew it, I'd made it through and flew down to Melbourne for the top 100. And then through, you know, three weeks of being in Melbourne, made it through to the top 24. And before I knew it, I was moving into a house with 24, you know, random strangers. <laughs> and I was into MasterChef season four, which was, you know, 10 years ago, which is absolutely incredible to think that so much has happened since. This there's some people that have really forged amazing careers in the food industry off the back of that experience of, of MasterChef. And, you, and you're one of them becoming culinary director of restaurant groups and or director of cuisine, um, running restaurants. Well, t- tell us about coming out of the MasterChef kitchen and then immersing yourself into the industry. Did it have challenges? Oh, absolutely. It has challenges. I think the stereotype is the biggest, biggest one. You know, a lot of people assume that if you're on MasterChef, you instantly think that you're going to be stepping into a kitchen as head chef and, you know, (laughs) doing all sorts of incredible things like that. But I think the beauty of MasterChef is that it actually has tapped into an abundance of incredible resources when it comes to people that truly have a passion for food that is unquestionable. And they go into it for a lot of the right reasons and probably a lot of the wrong reasons but they do have this incredible passion for and love of food and what they love about it hasn't been tainted by their experiences in the industry it hasn't been tainted by you know going through a, a learning institution where you know sometimes you are beaten down and the expectations are unrealistic I think people that come out of MasterChef when they truly have a belonging in food comes from a place of, of pure passion and for the people that have worked hard enough to stick it out I mean I know, you know you've had beautiful people like Kylie Miller on your program and I mean isn't she a testament to the program you know she's worked her way through kitchens of the world and now she's working you know doing you know culinary development in America, it's absolutely incredible what it can offer as an opportunity, but far out, you have to put the work in. You really do. I often think I often think that you have to almost work a little bit harder to prove yourself because we often come out a little bit older. I was 30, you know, when I did MasterChef the first time and I started on apprenticeship wages in kitchens in Sydney off the back of it. So I was working as a physio during the day to afford to be able to work at night in a kitchen so yeah long days and a lot of commitment and far out (laughs) I often question myself why I was mad enough to do it but here I am 10 years on and still very very passionate about the industry I think it attracts some of the most incredibly talented creative people and we're all about creating community and I think that's what I love about hospitality You've done some pretty incredible things since uh, MasterChef over the last decade. What's been the real sort of highlight for you that sort of um, cut, helped carve a path for you? I think people having the trust in me to kind of take over their kitchens. You know, I was approached to be a head chef about five years ago, and I was really honest with the owner of the business. I said, I've, I'm not a head chef. I don't have that experience. I've worked in a lot of kitchens, but he said, I just really believe in you and I'd love you to do it. So having people inst- like give that trust to you and hand over their businesses and, you know, 
the trust that that takes has been amazing. So being a head chef, but working for Lotus Dining Group and working in culinary mm. development and then going up to be, you know, director of cuisine and then running that entire company as CEO, I mean, far out could I have been thrown in the deep end and, you know, just, but had the most incredible experience because I feel so empowered around hospitality now. You know, I've done every single facet of the business from running a larder section as an apprentice chef to running a, a seven venue company and being really exposed to everything so it's been amazing and I feel so blessed for those opportunities and those experiences where I just realized number one I had to surround myself with incredible people and trust that they knew better than me for a lot of different things and I just had to lead and guide them to to shine you know and that was such a blessing to do that. Native ingredients have sort of really come to the fore on sort of menus across the country and the, there is a greater understanding, but we're still um, still in our infancy and in our understanding. Where, where do you see um, native ingredients at the moment in Australia? I think we're really at our infancy. Like I, I often chuckle at the fact that people think that they're newly discovered and, you know, that they're, these, they're very on trend at the moment, which I actually love because I think that they deserve to be on trend. Um, but, you know, for me, these native ingredients, they're part of our past, they're part of our now, and they're certainly an important part of Australia's future. You know, we look at you know, just tapping into them as ingredients at the moment. You're finding them in cafes and restaurants and certainly in fine dining. And I think that they deserve to be on an international stage where I would love to see them is in commonplace in our homes because that's truly where they deserve to be. Um, I think that the connectedness around the culture and the history and the stories are inseparable from these ingredients. And unless we as a nation choose to actually embrace that side of these ingredients, we are only really tapping into what a very small portion of what they have to offer. I truly believe that. To, it's a really good point, and you know, having people using in native ingredients in the home is a is a bigger step than in cafes and restaurants. But what do you think needs to happen, or how can that be facilitated um, for a greater understanding there? Yeah, I think a lot of it is just about accessibility. You know, a lot of these uh, native ingredients are still wild foraged, which is amazing because it means that they haven't been propagated and cultivated in a way that's taken away from the way that nature intended them. You know, you look at a midgen berry, which is this tiny little beautiful subtropical berry that grows all up the east coast um, of Australia, but they have four times, four to five times the vitamin C content of a blueberry. That is super food in itself, and they're probably one of the most delicious of, of bush foods because they, they're sweet, but they've got these amazing aromas of like eucalyptus and tea tree, and they're absolutely incredible. But it's about accessibility for people to actually access these ingredients. And I would love to see the government step forward and actually start to invest more money into researching how they can be cultivated and propagated on a, on a wider scale so they do become accessible. You know, they're naturally pest resistant. They don't need fertilizers. They're drought resistant. So in terms of environmental, you know, um, well-being of our nation, these foods belong here for a reason. They grow here for a reason. And we could definitely be cultivating them in a way that actually gives far more accessibility, not only to the traditional people of this country and First Nations people that really struggle to get access to their traditional foods, which 
which is heartbreaking in itself, but it means that Australia on a wider scale could have better better access to these ingredients and we deserve to have access to our native ingredients. Well, they're being showcased on the menu at Kakala. Tell us about the dish development there. Do you have a dish or two that you can talk about? Was, was it a challenge? Did you reach into your family's um, history from a culinary perspective or, or a contemporary setting? How did you come come about to create the menu that you've got? Well, I'm definitely inspired by the ingredients that grow all around us and we are blessed by the amount of natives that grow around the Byron region. You know, I often have farmers knocking on the restaurant door saying, hey, I've got, you know, four kilos of Davidson plums here. Would you like them? And of course, I I get super excited because I say to them, bring them on in and sit down and have a meal. And we kind of do that barter and exchange in that way. That is such a beautiful, that's a chef's dream to be able to do that. Or I get the local farmers calling me up and saying, I don't know what I've got on my property would you mind coming up and checking it out and then I see like eight to ten trees absolutely loaded with lemon aspen and I'm there standing under there with a sheet and I'm shaking the trees and cutting off branches just to take a big harvest home which is exciting you know and I love that I love taking my team out down on traditional country and we took them um, wattle seed harvesting at the end of last season where I take my whole team down and we walk out on country and I share the stories with them about wattle seed and we harvest wattle seed, we dry it out, then we smoke it, we grind it down. So for me, it's all about connecting with your place and food in a restaurant should be reflective of that time and that place because it does tell a story. And um, But I approach it from a culinary point, from a very modern point of view, you know. I do like to cook on coals. I do like to use like paperback to steam or to cook in. But my approach to the rest, the menu development is very, very modern. I guess I like to see, you know, my approach is using ancient ingredients but interpreting it with, with modern techniques and with modern flavours. So people do, um, I guess, can receive it in a way that's not too confrontational. People think of First Nations food and they think of kangaroo and witchy grubs and they think that's, it, that's the extent of it. And it's such a narrow-minded point of view. These foods are complex in their flavours. They're very unique. They're very intense. So where you would need, you know, maybe five, five bay leaves in a big, stock pot you could put one or two lemon myrtle leaves and get the same intensity of flavor so it is about testing and trying and and seeing what's in season at at the time as well which is what we love to do is is there a dish or two uh on the menu that you can tell us about that kind of exemplifies your approach well i think we have you know i mean we have a, a dish that we call our kakala curry and it uses all native ingredients in, in in place of common, I guess, Indian or Sri Lankan spice, you know, instead of using things like, you know, um, like white pepper or, or pepper, we would use dorigo pepper or pepper leaf. Um, instead of using a bay leaf, we use lemon myrtle, but we use salt bush, dried salt bush in it as well and, and native thyme and a lot of those different ingredients, even like native lemongrass, instead of using lemongrass or kaffir lime zest. So I do try and find those substitutions where we can build something like a curry that is incredibly complex in its flavour profile, but still is a dish that is approachable, I guess, to the general public. But you're getting these hints of lemon myrtle and native lemongrass and then salt bush that actually is a seasoning and the spice, you know, um, uses those spices instead of those common spices. Um, that creates a really beautiful dish that is really approachable for everybody. What do your family think about what you've created there? 
Oh, my, my mob's very, very proud. They're very, very proud. And, um, you know, they come in, they think it's quite flash, a lot of the food, you know. <laughs> they think it's flash compared to what we grew up on or what they're used to eating at home. But, God, it makes me so proud. It really does. I love bringing my aunties and I love bringing the elders and giving them food in a way that they've never seen it interpreted before. You know, like our food at home and growing up was super simple but super flavorful and those times sitting around and, and sharing stories and yarning and sitting around a big you know dinner table full of food is is what it's all about and that's what we try and I guess recreate at Kakala as well we often take off out a platter at the start of our meal when our guests come in and we sit down and we showcase on a coolum and all the native ingredients that we'll be showcasing in our meal so we show them in their raw form or dry form to say this is sea blight and this is where you find it this is where we forage it from these are the tasting notes this is Kakala we call at Yuli in Lingo and this is the name of our restaurant. We share the story about me being down at the beach as a little girl picking Yuli with my nan when we were little and we might have, you know, Dorigo pepper on there and all these different things and then we take that platter back to the kitchen and they're the foods that we're showcasing throughout our menu. So for people to be able to connect with the ingredient in its raw form and then be able to taste it in its cooked form, we're trying to give that full circle kind of experience and really connect them with the idea of culture, country and place. Yeah. Well, you've created an establishment that's really um, a part of your, your history and your heart and your soul as well and sharing it with so many. Well, what do you love about what you do? Oh, I just, I love how food connects people. You know, it's such a catalyst for great conversation. It's such a catalyst for change. And I really do think that native food, First Nations food, can be part of reconciliation. You know, my, my hope is that we can all join together as one nation and walk forward together. I know, certainly from my mob's perspective, you know, we've, we acknowledge the past. We have to acknowledge the past to learn from it. And what we want to do now is walk forward with all Australians so we can have a, a united Australia and we can walk forward as one mob and really celebrate our history as a joint history because this is everyone's history to celebrate. It is everyone's history history to embrace and these ingredients are all of ours to embrace and celebrate and certainly protect moving forward and I really hope that native food can be a huge you know, catalyst in that. Well, Mindy, you're an inspiration and it's an absolute honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Um, please keep in touch. And we'll catch up again soon. Yeah, Boogle Bay. I hope to have you mob all at Kikala sometime soon. Come on up. I look forward to having you there. <laughs> I would love that. Uh, take care. Have a wonderful day. Yeah, Boogle Bay. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.